I'm Rachel Gopau, and this is Intention to Treat, a podcast from the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Mayron Hollis. I'm 32, and I found out I was pregnant in the middle of July. And I was like, <laughs> I just had a baby. My daughter was like four months old at the time. Mayron Hollis was surprised to be pregnant so soon, but was thrilled to have another child on the way. And then she went to her first prenatal ultrasound. When I was getting the ultrasound, there was like four or five people coming in, you know, looking at the screen. The lady wouldn't tell me anything. Usually when you're ultrasound, she'll go, here's this, here's this. She didn't say anything. Um, and then when I talked to, to the doctor, you know, about what's going on, he told me that this wasn't a viable pregnancy. The doctor told her that her fetus was growing out of her C-section scar. She had a high-risk condition known as placenta accreta. He told me that the baby was in the wrong place. The placenta was in the wrong place. The baby in the placenta could, could go through my uterine walk. So he said, because I just had a baby, that it's really, really thin. And so at any point, you know, the placenta could go through my bladder. It could go through any of my organs. And I could bleed out and start hemorrhaging. He just expressed to me that you could die and we need to move forward with this. We need to set up, you know, surgery immediately. And he would, you know, explain to me how sorry he was. And, you know, he knew that I wanted this, but at this time we needed to do the surgery. The surgery would mean terminating her pregnancy. It was a devastating diagnosis and Hollis wasn't ready to accept it. I decided to get a second opinion. And when I went to do that, at first they had my hopes up there, like, you know, we don't believe in termination. Everything's going to be good. Yes, the baby is in the wrong spot, but the baby's growing fine. Everything's fine. Let's move forward. And then they set me up with another appointment. That was with the hospital's maternal fetal specialists. I went to that other appointment, and it wasn't all fine. They told me that there wasn't nothing they could do for me at that clinic. When Mayron Hollis returned to her original doctors, she was more than 10 weeks pregnant, and her condition had become increasingly dangerous. Her doctor told her she was running out of time. At this point, you know, he's like, it's not looking good. The ultrasound that you had, everything's looking like it's going to be, you know, you're going to start hemorrhaging at some point, and we don't know if we can save you. And I was terrified, so I called him the next day, and I was like, okay, let's let's set the surgery up. But in Tennessee, where Mayron Hollis lives, there was a new law on the books, one that bans virtually all abortions. When Hollis's condition was first diagnosed, the surgery would have been fairly straightforward, and there was a doctor willing to do it. Now, a month later, it was not. It required a team of specialists, and her doctor informed her those specialists were not willing to move forward. He told me that backed out because of the new laws and because of the heartbeat law. They're too scared that, you know, their practices are going to get shut down, and that's how I was, I was told and explained, and that's how I'm interpreted it. Both Hollis and her doctors searched in other states for providers who would do the surgery, but the cost to go elsewhere was too high, and Hollis, who has been in recovery from drug addiction for several years, was at the time engaged in an expensive legal battle with the state to get her infant daughter back. We did not have the money to go out of state, nor did we have 
the authority to, because if we would have went out of state, DCS could have been like, you abandon your child, even though she was with my cousin. So I did not have the option to do anything other than to stay, you know, in Tennessee and do it because I couldn't leave my daughter. I didn't, I would never risk, you know, losing my daughter. Hollis and her husband felt they had no choice but to continue with the pregnancy despite the risks. So in mine and my husband's mind, we we had to do this. Like, we had to keep this baby, we had to keep this pregnancy, and we had to do whatever we could to make sure that we have a viable baby at the end of this and that I can survive. So I'm just trying to take it one day at a time, sometimes one minute, 20 minutes at a time, just whatever I can do to get by. But she has told her husband he must be ready if it doesn't work out. I told him right now, you know, I'm having to be strong, so I do need him to prepare just in case. I told him he... Sorry. He needs to... In his mind, he doesn't need to think about it, but he needs to be able to mentally prepare just in case that happens. That's Mayron Hollis in Tennessee, a state with one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. For years since the U.S. Supreme Court made abortion legal with the decision on Roe v. Wade, the New England Journal of Medicine has supported reproductive rights, In July 2022, soon after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, the journal published an editorial condemning the court's reversal. Its lead author is NEJM associate editor, Dr. Michael Green, and he joins us now. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. So let me ask you, why does the New England Journal of Medicine feel it's necessary to take a stand on women's reproductive rights? Well, women's reproductive rights are just a version of our concern about legislators trying to prescribe how we practice medicine. This has become an issue since the intent of many state legislators to restrict abortion access by any means necessary, including a variety of restrictive laws that made a pretense at being for the purpose of protecting the safety of the mother, but really were targeted at abortion providers to make it difficult for them to do their work. This is uh, not a new interest of ours. Uh, We've been concerned about this uh, since uh, Roe passed, essentially. So as I mentioned, the journal weighed in on the abortion debate with your help right after the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization. The editorial was titled Lawmakers versus the Science of Human Reproduction. Why that title? The growth of science around human reproduction has increased enormously since 1973. In 1973, we didn't have ultrasound. We weren't 100% confident how many chromosomes human beings had. It wasn't until relatively recently that we've been able to uh, look at women's blood when they're pregnant and assess the chromosomal composition of their fetus or embryo to determine whether it's normal or not normal. 
and what kind of a prognosis a woman could reasonably expect for that offspring if she were to carry it to term. We have the ability with the science that we now have at our fingertips, much of which was not available in 1973. We can protect women's lives when they're approaching very dangerous situations. But frequently, protecting their lives requires that we have to terminate their pregnancy for them. Although we have this diagnostic ability, we do not have, in states where abortion is severely restricted, we do not have the option of offering a woman a way to manage her own destiny. A good example is the dilemma that the patient that you interviewed finds herself in. She has a cesarean section scar, essentially ectopic pregnancy. By ultrasound, we can now get a pretty good idea as to whether that pregnancy is going to invade into or even through the wall of her uterus, into her bladder, or even into her pelvic sidewall. This situation if it's allowed or forced to go to term, can result in life-threatening maternal hemorrhage. This is one of the potential complications that uh, obstetrician-gynecologists fear the most. And do these restrictive laws not just result in fear among healthcare providers, but actually create an overall chilling effect? The states that have banned or have restricted access to abortion, have fewer maternity care providers per 10,000 births, more maternity care deserts where uh, women have difficulty obtaining access to maternity care, higher rates of maternal mortality, higher rates of premature birth, higher rates of infant death, especially among women of color, higher overall death rates for women of reproductive age, and greater racial inequities across their healthcare systems. These trends are only going to become worse. There have already been informal surveys in states with very restrictive abortion laws finding that OBGYN trainees intend to leave those states when they finish their training because they don't want to be governed uh, by these extremely uh, restrictive abortion laws. So what's going to happen is the poor states who don't have enough uh, maternity care providers now are going to have even fewer in the future. And Mike, you've spent your entire career taking care of women with high-risk pregnancies. That was my practice for the whole time that I've been in practice, was to take care of women who had uh, medical and surgical complications of pregnancy that either endangered the pregnancy or endangered their own lives. This can be true for an invasive placenta like we've spoken about. It also pertains to women who have heart disease. Some of these cardiac complications have at least a 50% risk of death if the woman attempts to carry the pregnancy to term. We recognize what the problem is, but if we can't terminate the pregnancy, it dramatically reduces our ability to be confident of saving her life. These are decisions that belong to women and their doctors, uh, and there's no way to cookbook these in a state legislature. 
Mike, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring these issues to the attention of a broader audience. That's Dr. Michael Green. He's an associate editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. Now we're going to talk to some doctors who practice in states where abortion bans have been in effect. So now I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Ehrenberg. She's a maternal fetal specialist at the Cleveland Clinic and also by Dr. Elise Boos. She's an OBGYN clinician who specializes in complex family planning and she practices in Tennessee. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Ehrenberg, let's start with you. When Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court last June, Ohio's new abortion ban went into effect that night. How did that affect you? That night, I found out it was late. I was at home. Immediately, my mind kind of went into overdrive, as in what's going on in my practice right now? Who are my patients that are going to be affected? How can I continue to provide evidence-based medical care for them within the state of Ohio? I could think of a number of patients in my practice alone that were going to be significantly affected by this. And I know that some of them have the resources and the ability to travel, to get the care that they need, and others don't. And I think that was one of the things that was hardest on me was knowing that this was now going to separate medical care even further. You know, when the law came about, it really confused a lot of us. The language is very vague and it does allow for discontinuation or termination of pregnancy if the woman has something that is a threat to maternal life or bodily function. And it does give some specific examples of medical conditions that are included, such as diabetes, multiple sclerosis. Um, it does not include things like mental health or cancer. So it's left up to the provider and the legal team at our hospitals to determine what falls into those confines. And, and with each specific case, does this align or does it not? So I have women who come into our office who have any number of medical issues, whether it is poorly controlled diabetes, whether it is cancer, heart failure, uh, whether it is an uncontrolled seizure disorder, where I would say, we need to talk about how risky this pregnancy is for you or we could be having a conversation about the fetus and the fetus has birth defects, the fetus has a growth issue, the fetus has a chromosome abnormality. And let's talk about what that's gonna look like and whether that's safe to continue or not. We have young healthy women that come into pregnancy with absolutely no medical issues and they have preeclampsia and have a seizure and they hemorrhage and lose their uterus where they hemorrhage and they die, or they throw a big blood clot into their lungs and die. And these are otherwise young and healthy women. So pregnancy is not benign. So that in and of itself is a threat to maternal life and bodily function, but it's to what degree? So it makes it very difficult for those of us taking care of these women to know when something has reached that legal definition. 
So, Dr. Boos, I'd like to turn to you now. You practice in Tennessee at a major medical center that has asked not to be identified. The Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs also led to major changes in your state. Talk to me about what happened there. Prior to the Dobbs decision, abortion in Tennessee was permitted through viability. Several days after Dobbs was handed down, our quote-unquote heartbeat bill or six-week ban went into effect. And then it wasn't actually until August that our trigger ban, which made all abortion a criminal act, went into effect. And one of the unique things, and I would argue cruel aspects of our law, is that it doesn't include any exceptions. So the state has a very narrow definition of abortion and then defines all abortion as a criminal act. And similar to the Ohio law, it leaves us wondering how close to death's door does a patient need to be in order to provide them abortion care. So abortion became a class C felony in Tennessee, which carried a three to 15 year prison sentence and a $10,000 fine. And our fear and the panic that ensued among colleagues was we had no guidance on when to provide abortion care, when to not. And we suddenly were forced to choose between our freedom and the health and interest of our patients. If we get it wrong, if we offer abortion care to someone and a prosecutor or a jury disagrees that abortion care should have been offered in order to save their life or avoid impairment of a major bodily function, the penalty is is jail time. And so we might know what is in someone's interest. We may know that we can reduce their risk of mortality or morbidity in pregnancy. But we have to wonder from the outside, will others agree with us? And it doesn't allow you to be present in the exam room with a patient having a conversation about how much risk is too much risk for you to assume to continue this pregnancy. You know, some people will go to great lengths and take on a great deal of risk in order to attempt to achieve a live birth. But for others, the risk is too great. And who am I as a physician to tell someone that they must assume X percentage risk of death um, before we can offer them a healthier alternative. It's a it's an uncomfortable place to occupy. To Elisa's point, you know, both Elisa and I have spent years, if not decades, training to understand these very complex medical nuances. And we're left with talking to our lawyers and trying to get guidance from them, which is a very new uh, concept to physicians that instead of just doing what we know is medically appropriate and evidence-based medicine and talking to the patient in our exam room, we are now having to go outside of our exam room to try to get these answers from people who have less medical background than we do. And that's very uncomfortable and not what I think is the best care for our patients. But as practicing physicians, don't you have insurance for when things go wrong, Dr. Boos? You know, our medical malpractice does not cover criminal legal defense, and these would be criminal charges. So 
as someone who's several years out of fellowship and has a small family, I hate to say, but I think of these things. You know, could I mount a legal defense? Do I have enough money in the bank in order to defend care that I thought was necessary and indicated? And all of our colleagues have had those same thoughts. And it is hard to imagine that that has not hindered patients in receiving necessary care. So, Dr. Ehrenberg, have you been in one of those murky situations where the law created a gray area as to whether you felt you could provide an abortion? There are two easy examples that I can think of where I've had to pause and one that we ended up moving forward with and one that we ended up not. The one that we moved forward with was a patient who came in around 20 weeks of pregnancy bleeding. And it was fairly brisk vaginal bleeding. Her vital signs at first were stable, but started to become a little bit more unstable. She was definitely losing a lot of blood. We were ordering blood to give her a transfusion. And the question becomes, how far do we try to take it? Can we take her for a a termination immediately? Do we need to try to transfuse her and transfuse her and transfuse her to see if that can temporize things until we can get her to a point of viability? It was a gray area. You know, at what point is the bleeding too much? Because women do have bleeding in pregnancy. Sometimes it's a little bit of spotting. Sometimes it's bleeding like a period for a day or two, and then it stops on its own. Other times it's a true hemorrhage, and we can't get it to stop until we empty the uterus. And it's a continuum. So making that decision of when does it reach that tipping point where I can say it's a truly a threat to her life or bodily function is a gray area. So what happened? Based on the number of people that are highly educated in this area that agreed that this was a serious concern for her life, and in conversations with the patient and her wishes, we were able to move forward. In a separate case, our practice was taking care of a teenager whose baby was diagnosed with multiple anomalies that were not compatible with life. Uh, She and her mother were extensively counseled on continuation versus discontinuation of the pregnancy. They chose to terminate the pregnancy and because of the lethal anomalies, the mother's health insurance had coverage for a termination of pregnancy. So the patient was scheduled for the termination. She was scheduled a few days after the Roe versus Wade overturning came about. And because the heartbeat bill passed in Ohio that same day, she could no longer have her termination of pregnancy. Uh, They looked into going out of state, and unfortunately, the health insurance didn't cover the out-of-state procedure, and the family wasn't able to come up with the resources to do that. So the patient has continued the pregnancy. So this teenage girl is going to give birth to a baby that will die soon after it is born. Yeah, I mean, this particular patient, you know, she will have this baby. Then she will choose to spend time with the baby or not spend time with the baby. That's certainly her choice. But watching any mother watch their child die, it's gut-wrenching. And how that's going to affect her lifelong, I don't know but it does. So I want to turn back to you, Dr. Boos. You work in Tennessee where the laws are even more restrictive than in Ohio. 
What was your hospital's response? So as soon as the Politico article was leaked, as an institution, um, a task force was put in place to try and conceptualize how we would continue to provide necessary care within the confines of state and federal law, while also protecting our providers and really having an in-depth conversation about how do we take, you know, a law that doesn't account for the nuance of obstetrical care and apply it to individual patients in complex situations without any guidebook and without any examples of what would or wouldn't be prosecuted. You know, we were, we were really hellbent that we were not going to let women die and we were going to provide care that was necessary and indicated. But at the same time, we have to we have to engage everyone, and often that care is multidisciplinary, and we are sometimes at the mercy of one or two people who might object um, that abortion care is, is indicated. So we began by considering, as I think many institutions have, about various conditions that might rise to the level of a threat to maternal life or threat to substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. So it's requiring us to interact with a patient in a way that often lacks a great deal of empathy to the situation that they're in. For instance, when we have a patient who has an ectopic, a tubal ectopic pregnancy or a C-section scar ectopic, and we are offering them abortion care, we are suddenly now forced so long as the patient is stable enough to undergo a second ultrasound um, or at least make the offer to perform a second ultrasound in order for them to see the pregnancy and listen to the heartbeat if, it, if they'd like to listen to it. We're required to repeat this state-required counseling. What you have to say, there's a line that says, there are agencies that can assist you if you'd like to continue your pregnancy, and I am required by state law to provide you with a list of those should you request it. And, you know, there is, there is no agency that can assist someone with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And so they are suddenly these very humiliating and cruel interactions with patients who sometimes are facing the fact that they are losing a very desired pregnancy. There's also, in the state of Ohio, we have a table where we have to say, at this gestational age, the chance for your pregnancy going to term is blank. And there's a percentage. But if it's an ectopic pregnancy, if it is a pregnancy where the baby has significant anomalies, those numbers are not accurate at all. But yet I have to recite them. And then I have to tell the patient, but these actually don't apply to you because if you have an ectopic pregnancy, the chance for your pregnancy to go to term is zero, but that's not the number I have to give them. So it's actually not accurate medical information that we're counseling them on, which makes no sense. We are, we are taking risk with people's lives because the law has threatened us. And when we have threatened providers from being able to offer the standard of care, we have a problem. So essentially, you are being forced to violate the very principle of what it means to be a doctor. 
by depriving patients the right to end pregnancies in the setting of grave and lethal fetal anomalies, I would say deprives parents of being able to demonstrate a, a great deal of love. Um, I cared often for patients who wanted to terminate their pregnancies for lethal anomalies. And that was often their greatest gesture of love to this fetus because they were choosing to end the pregnancy to avoid suffering or to avoid a quick death after birth. And it was not what these parents wanted, but it's what they felt their children needed. And to tell parents that they cannot give their children this is incredibly hard to watch. And I would take it one step further to say, all of us as physicians, the, the cardinal rule of being in healthcare and being a physician is first do no harm. And that doesn't feel like that's what this is. So as we conclude, Dr. Boos, is there anything that you'd like to add? We can't function like this. We can't function in fear. We can't be fearful that every time we provide indicated abortion, we could potentially go to jail. And so I think we're all bracing for an increase in maternal death. And the fact that we won't be able to change the law until women die seems absurd. Thank you both so very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Dr. Elise Boos is an OBGYN clinician who specializes in complex family planning, and she practices in Tennessee. And we're also joined by Dr. Stacy Ehrenberg. She's a maternal fetal specialist at the Cleveland Clinic. You're listening to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, the promise and the perils of psychedelics. My brain just felt so different. It was just a, such a different place for my consciousness to inhabit. I can unequivocally say that this clinical trial changed my life. It's almost impossible to do a double-blinded study because after all, when you take a psychedelic, you know it. So we have two groups of people in this study, those who had hallucinations and those who did not. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.